Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. I'd also like to welcome our viewers uh, online to this morning's panel on the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, Renewed Interest After Ukraine. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'd like to acknowledge the, president, the presence of His Excellency uh, Nuno Brito, the Ambassador of Portugal to the United States. We're honored to have you here uh, with your colleagues. We're honored that you're in the uh, audience with us today. At the outset, I should know that those of us who focus on transatlantic relations uh, have until recently felt rather eclipsed in Washington or ignored, and a feeling that I've sensed in my uh, travels uh, to various European capitals uh, over the past uh, few years as well. Uh, I should, Senator Obama's vaunted trip to Europe as a presidential candidate uh, in 2008 and his speech at the Brandenburg Gate notwithstanding, the Obama administration has, as observers on both sides of the political aisle have noted, and on both sides of the political aisle, both in the United States and in Europe, uh, has, have, is considered, has devoted what's considered uh, relatively little time, uh, energy or political capital, to European affairs. The one very positive note being, uh, and one very positive exception being, the transatlantic uh, trade and investment partnership announced in the President's 2013 State of the Union address. But even these negotiations have been overshadowed to some degree by the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was announced first and is considered uh, to some degree a vital part of the U.S. pivot towards Asia. Suddenly, however, the events of the last few weeks, Moscow's incursion into Crimea, there is a renewed focus on transatlantic cooperation in uh, numerous areas, and TTIP has become a far more important agenda item. What are the prospects for TTIP? What challenges does it face in Brussels and various European nation states and in Washington? And does the broader geopolitical crisis we now face with NATO states themselves, member states themselves, especially in the Baltics, finding themselves under increased uh, threat, uh, how does this play into uh, prospects for TTIP? <coughs> to examine these issues, we have a distinguished group of panelists uh, this morning from whom we will hear shortly panel comprised of noted observers of European affairs and former officials uh, who happen to be also good friends, Rod Hunter of Pharma, the Senior Vice President of Pharma, Tom Dusterberg, who runs the um, program on uh, manufacturing and uh, 21st century society at the Aspen Institute, and Jeff Gedman, Senior Fellow at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. And the discussion will be moderated by my uh, colleague, uh, Senior Fellow Chris Sands, himself a leading expert on NAFTA who directs Hudson's initiative on North American competitiveness. But first, uh, we get to hear from our uh, keynote speaker, uh, Bruno Machias, the uh, Secretary of State for European Affairs in the government of Portuguese uh, Prime Minister uh, Cuello. And I should note that Portugal, which had been one of the so-called sick men in Europe, uh, has the fastest growing economy in the Eurozone and is going to exit its uh, emergency aid package on May 17th, so congratulations. Uh, on this extraordinary accomplishment. We're delighted to have one of the rising stars of, uh, on the Portuguese political scene and in the Portuguese government uh, with us today. Before becoming Secretary of State for European Affairs in early 2013, Renan served as a senior political advisor to the Prime Minister of Portugal. Earlier in his career, he lectured at the University of Yonsei in South Korea, and he was involved in launching the European College of Liberal Arts in Berlin, he's a political theorist who is, by training, who is as comfortable talking about Wittgenstein and Rousseau as he is about EU affairs, and his doctoral dissertation uh, 
at Harvard University won the very prestigious Richard Herrnstein Prize in 2006 for the best Harvard PhD in the social sciences. I'm delighted to call him a friend and to welcome him here to Hudson Institute. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give him a warm uh, welcome. Thank you. Well, let me, let me start by thank you, thanking Ken for, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be at Hudson. As you know, Hudson has been uh, one of the think tanks, one of the institutions in D.C. that's been most focused on transatlantic issues, on transatlantic ties, promoting them, studying them. Uh, I worked in, um, in D.C. Uh, in, uh, in another think tank back in 2008, and it always seems to me that the, the, think, tank, uh, the think tanks in Washington should be a lot more focused on Europe. Uh, and I think we saw that later with the Eurozone crisis uh, and now with Ukraine, uh, how important it is to, uh, to look to Europe uh, and to look to transatlantic ties and, and hopefully to strengthen them. Uh, TTIP has changed a lot of things. Um, I think it has, first of all, forced us to look very carefully at what the United States and Europe have in common. Because really what TTIP is about is is the attempt to draw all the, all the consequences uh, and all the benefits from the proximity and the similarity that exists between the United States and, and Europe. We know that in many, many respects, we share common values and common goals, common policy goals. And so uh, what lacks is the attempt to actually draw all the practical conclusions from that. Uh, if uh, for example, the two regulatory systems are in fact pursuing similar goals, let's look carefully at how they work and try to bring them closer together. Because in many cases there aren't significant uh, policy goals differences between the two systems. What exists is um, the product of uh, different historical developments, in some cases the product of chance. Uh, there are regulatory divergences that don't make a lot of sense and that can be relatively easily corrected. And so TTIP is, has a broader meaning than the purely uh, technical aspects of the negotiation. Uh, and, and that broader meaning is, let's uh, study very carefully what we have in common, the two blocks, uh, and let's try to draw all the conclusions from that. Uh, what TTIP is, is, is something uh, quite different from what we had in the past. It's uh, placed somewhere between a traditional free trade agreement and a, the creation of a single market. It clearly was, as, as we can see later, not something that can be compared to the creation of the European single market for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and in a way, uh, it's a good thing that we're not even trying to do that because we would not be able to do it. But it's also very different from a traditional free trade agreement. A traditional free trade agreement is focused on tariffs uh, and perhaps uh, market access, a little focus on rules, uh, but usually they, they neglect what is, in fact, the most interesting part of TTIP, that's the regulatory part, trying to bring about a level of regulatory convergence or coherence between the two blocks. Uh, and this is uh, quite new, quite different, uh, and raises all sorts of, of interesting questions. Uh, first of all, it raises the question of how can we do that? How can we bring the two regulatory uh, systems closer together while preserving uh, differences that we want to preserve and while preserving political and regulatory autonomy on both sides. Because clearly I don't think it would be possible for either the EU or the US to sacrifice their uh, 
their ability and their freedom, their autonomy to regulate their economies. Um, this is, seems uh, clearly impossible, and I think it's been a good thing that both negotiation, negotiators on, on the American and the European side have made it clear that we're not trying to do that. And that whatever choices uh, have been made by the American public and the European public, if they are divergent, then these divergences have to be preserved. If, it is a, if it's a conscient, uh, either ethical, political, economic choice made by the EU or the United States, then we have to preserve these differences. If it's not a conscious, deliberate choice, if it's the accident of, uh, of history or uh, purely the product of, of different uh, regulatory paths, then we'll try to, to uh, correct it. Uh, but clearly, we want to preserve uh, policy autonomy. This has been made clear on our side by the Trade Commissioner de Gucht, that, and he has been careful about this because usually in free trade negotiations, if you're not careful and if you let um, the public debate uh, get away from the fundamentals, get away from what can be gained from, from the agreement, uh, and get a little involved in some particular issues that are not decisive to the, to the outcome, this can be very dangerous. We know that free trade negotiations usually are captured by special interest groups that have a lot to lose. Uh, and those that have a lot to win, they are, the benefits are very <coughs> widespread, uh, and it's much more difficult to mobilize those groups that, that can gain from the, from the agreement. Uh, and so Commissioner de Gucht has been very clear that um, on those fundamental differences, neither side will compromise. And I think there's been equal clarity from the American side. So then the challenge is, how can we preserve uh, policy differences that both sides recognize as fundamental, while at the same time uh, bringing about greater regulatory uh, coherence? And we can talk about this later. Uh, the approach in general has been um, piecemeal. You look at every particular sector, every particular subsector, and you try to build bridges between the two regulatory systems. The difference between what we're doing here and, and the creation of a single market is that you don't uh, you don't wipe out the existing regulatory uh, edifice and build a new common one. What you do is you preserve <coughs> what exists and then you try to build bridges between them. Bridges that then can be used by, by people and businesses uh, to work better together. So this is, I think, the, the first fundamental question that is raised by the regulatory component. How can we do both things at once? Uh, the second question that is raised has to do with um, the future shape of the global trading system and what TTIP can do. If we are actually able to create a very high level of regulatory coherence, then the standards uh, and the rules um, and the regulatory system that results from this is necessarily going to, to become a universal norm. The United States and Europe are responsible for uh, about <coughs> half of, of the world's GDP, uh, close to half of the world's trade, and so it's easy to understand that if we are able to create uh, a, a greater level of regulatory coherence, what regulations result from this are going to have to be accepted by other economic blocs in the region, uh, by, by China, by Japan, uh, by Latin America, by Russia. Uh, there really is no way around it. Um, and this is, of course, something that, uh, that is of great interest to both the U.S. and Europe. Uh, we are in a world of uh, where geoeconomic power is always at the forefront, um, where it seems clear that those who think that it will not be used are wrong. It will be used. Uh, 
but where geoeconomic power is, is, is being used, um, it relies a lot on the ability to impose standards on other parts of the world. Um, and really, TTIP is, a, is about the question of under which regulatory standards do we want to live in the future? Uh, and the United States and Europe, in full knowledge that uh, we have, in fact, alre we already share a lot of the policy goals behind our regulatory systems. We want to, we want to make those regulatory systems converge as much as they can. Uh, on the issue still of, of geoeconomic power and what TTIP can, can do, um, it also seems clear to me that if we, if we could increase uh, trade ties and investment ties between the U.S. and Europe, this would uh, uh, increase the economic power that, that both sides can use. And recently, uh, with Ukraine, we've seen how impor important it is uh, to be able to wield a significant amount of economic power, uh, even the deterrent aspect that economic power has in our world. And it's clear that if we can build um, a, uh, a trading area that is uh, uh, more active than today, if we can increase trade between the two sides by 30, 40 percent, as has been suggested, this will be of enormous significance. And we'll provide both the U.S. and Europe a level of flexibility. Uh, we'll extend our, the range of policy choices that we can make. One is, for example, discussing the issue of economic sanctions. It's clear that a bloc composed of the United States and Europe with very integrated economic ties has a range of policy options in terms of the sanctions that it can impose, which is much wider than what the two sides have uh, alone, uh, isolated from each other. And this will be, I'll, I'll make that statement, this will be of greater and greater significance in, in the future. So it's a good thing that we're working on it right now. Um, because it, it, it will be uh, enormous political and economic capital that can be used by both Europe and, and the United States um, in the future. Uh, so this is, I, I think, the, the political and the geostrategic way to look uh, at, at, at the agreement. Uh, I left for last the economic aspect. Um, that's a very significant. Um, in Portugal, we're working uh, very closely with an international team <coughs> trying to uh, estimate the economic impact of, of the agreement. We don't have the final figures yet. There is a number of there's a number of studies, uh, but they they reach very different results. There's um, a famous or infamous one done by Bertelsmann uh, that really um, estimates. Uh, I would call it an, an earthquake in global uh, in global trade flows um, and even the impact on growth. If you look at that, you'll see that they. They, they think that TTIP will bring about um, impact in almost every, every country in the world. I remember, for example, New Zealand, they estimate a uh, negative impact of about 5% of GDP because of trade diversion. So uh, this is, in fact, when I got very interested in TTIP with this Bertelsmann study because it seemed that it was going to uh, nothing about the global economy would remain the same. I have now... Uh, come to the opinion that the study is, is in fact, in some, in some respects, uh, uh, flawed, um, and we need to perhaps to change some of the assumptions that, that are included there. But I have no doubts that the impact will be very significant. Uh, and in particular, <coughs> if we try to magnify that impact by implementing a number of reforms in the domestic uh, regulatory and political systems in both the U.S. and Europe, then the impact can be magnified. If we don't do anything, 
um, if we leave it merely to the rearrangement of trade flows, the impact will, will be important, but not as significant as it could be. So in Portugal, what we're trying to do is to start thinking about the sort of economic reforms that can magnify that impact. And I think this is uh, something to think about both in, in other European member states, but also in the United States. The agreement could also be the start of <coughs> Uh, a more permanent and more durable uh, attempt to bring the two sides together, which doesn't end with the signing, but <coughs> goes on even, even after that. Uh, but um, we are, we're quite hopeful in Portugal, just very briefly, to, to go through what I think are our main interests. First of all, that tariffs will entirely disappear, and this is a commitment on both sides. Uh, at the very least, industrial tariffs will, will disappear. And you know that in some sectors, uh, United States still charges a very high level of tariffs. Uh, and that's also true of, of, of the European Union uh, in some cases. Um, for example, the United States charges uh, an average of 30% for textiles and footwear, in some cases much above 30%. So we have these, um, these still very high tariffs that have survived all liberalization efforts in the past. Uh, then, of course, we're very interested in the public procurement market in the United States. We think that the United States will have to invest heavily in infrastructure, uh, and American companies, even Portuguese companies, could, um, could uh, participate in this effort. Uh, we're very interested in reducing the regulatory divergence between the two systems, in particular countries like Portugal and Southern Europe in general, uh, whose economies are very much based on small and medium-sized companies. They simply cannot operate with the level of regulatory divergence we have. They cannot go through two different certification processes. It's too expensive for small companies. So there's also a, a political element to this agreement that uh, hopefully it will create a level playing field between the big multinationals, which already operate on both sides of the Atlantic very easily, and SMEs, which so far have been confined to, uh, to the two blocks. So we can actually present this <coughs> to, to the public as an effort to create a fairer, uh, uh, a fairer economic environment where the big companies will be forced to, to also deal on equal terms with, with smaller companies. Uh, and that globalization, in this case, uh, transatlantic globalization will be also, um, uh, will Small, small and medium-sized companies will be able to participate in, in globalization to a greater extent that they've been able to, to do in the past. Um, so public procurement, tariffs, uh, regulatory convergence, and investments. This has been a particularly polemic part of, the, of, the, of TTIP, an investment agreement that will protect investors uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, hopefully was, this will also contribute to increase uh, American investment in Europe and European investment in the U.S. So we're also very interested in making this investment agreement work. Um, Portugal is, is very much in favor of having an investment chapter in TTIP, uh, and it could be could open also a, a new age of, of transatlantic investment and, and greater economic integration. Um, the global economy is a, an economy of um, uh, increased uh, integration, where you know, no product is, is, is produced in a single country. Uh, and these global supply chains uh, have become extremely complex, uh, and, and, and therefore the European Union and the United States have to come up with the best way to take advantage of increasingly integrated supply chains. And I can think of a world where 
uh, it will be possible uh, for production processes to take place essentially on both sides of the Atlantic simultaneously, where some components will be built in the U.S. and other components will be built in America, and perhaps they will all be assembled in Portugal, which is right in the middle. Thank you very much. Look forward to the, to the debate. Thank you very much, Dr. Machese. And I think this, it's clear why, how you've come to be so respected in Washington and, and seen as an intellectual leader on TTIP on both sides of the Atlantic. We now turn to Rod Hunter, who is a Senior Vice President for International uh, Affairs at Pharma uh, and a longtime observer of, of European relations and transatlantic relations. Rod? Well, first off, I'd like to thank Ken and Chris for inviting me. This is uh, Hudson has a special place uh, for me, given I had the good fortune of spending some time here after the previous administration before economic gravity set in and had to get a real job and um, <laughs> they paid the bills and the school bills. But um, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, heading, the heading of the uh, conference refers to um, uh, U Ukraine. And the trade, trade negotiators will emphasize, stress that um, uh, Russia's predations in Ukraine have no, will have no impact <coughs> on the negotiations themselves. But it, it is a, um, an important reminder, an important reminder of, the, of the, the common values and the common vision about the international system which the U.S. and Europe share. And it, it's a reminder of how integrated our economies are. I mean, some 20 percent of our trade in goods and services are our, our exports. Um, imports are uh, with, with Europe, and also, and perhaps, and I would argue more, even more fundamentally, our economies are largely structured the same, whereas um, increasingly knowledge economies. Um, people have, for the last couple of decades, talked about a knowledge economy, but um, some recent economic studies have shown that something like more than 50 percent of the value of uh, the Fortune 500 companies is tied up in their intellectual capital. That's in the U.S. Um, some European studies have indicated some 40 percent of the economic activity in, the Euro in Europe derives from, is based on, on um, intellectual capital or intellectual property. So uh, the, our economies are increasingly becoming truly the, um, the knowledge economies. That's what we do um, in, in the global distribution, the global um, divisions of, uh, of labor. Which, which should inform how we look at the global economy and how we look at um, <coughs> international, international norms governing those uh, um, in trade and investment. Now, the trade agreements um, are always slow. Um, the f there's a lot of excitement. Uh, I think people use metaphors like one tank of gas and things like that early on, um, never making it clear whether it was a diesel or electric motor. Um, but the um, the uh, it's clear that this negotiation, I mean, U.S. FTAs typically take four or five years, to, and that includes even some of the small ones like Bahrain. Um, this is not like the Bahrain agreement. This is going to take a, a long time uh, for some of the reasons we, we just heard about the regulatory, regulatory issues, um, which are, are um, complex even for regulatory lawyers like, uh, like myself. The, um, um, and in, on top of that, you have the intervening preoccupation of the United States with the trade, uh, with uh, TPP, um, uh, also with the lack of trade promotion authority at the moment. Um, and on the European side, um, a transition coming up. Um, you're going to have a, a new commission, and so there'll be inevitably be slippage in that context. Um, and um, so, I wouldn't I wouldn't be disheartened by the fact that this is going to take a long time. The implications of it would be 
um, will be far-reaching and certainly worth the, the effort. You know, we, people talk frequently about the benefits of, of the trade agreement, noting the, um, uh, this, the benefits for reducing the tariffs. You know, the U.S. US and European average tariffs are only about, the U.S. I think it's four and a half, no, three and a half percent, and the average European tariff is something like four and a half percent. So while there are some, spot, um, there are some spikes, um, you, know, you have to pay something like 20% or 30% tariff if, when you buy your Crocs, if you are so inclined to wear such shoes. There, um, uh, much of the trade takes place with very little, um, very little in the way of tariffs, although there are expensive, uh, are extensive um, trade costs. The, um, um, nonetheless, these small tariffs <coughs> over large amounts of trade obviously may, uh, add up to a big number, and so elimination would actually be a nice um, uh, tax cut for everyone. The real value, of course, is in, in the services and, and in the regulatory spaces we just heard. And, you know, while the study, some of the studies have suggested, and they're all um, nothing but conjecture, but some of the studies have suggested in increases in um, GDP for each side of around um, half of a percent, that doesn't sound like a big number in itself, but where trade agreements have had their biggest effect is when they've been tied with domestic reform agendas. Um, you know, when, we, when the U.S. did NAFTA, extending this um, Canadian agreement to, to Mexico, that was about reinforcing a domestic reform agenda that the Mexican government had. And, you know, the U.S. and in Europe in the past have never had to negotiate with a party that was quite like the other, um, where there was actually an equal um, um, negotiation. Um, and that presents an opportunity. So here on the, U on the U.S. side, there is actually an opportunity <coughs> to have a ne trade negotiator asking for reforms which would otherwise be really difficult to achieve, and um, the reverse. And so some of these issues which Carl um, um, de Gouk and, um, would refer to as sensitive actually probably are things that are worth exploring. Some of those regulatory issues which, um, um, which may have initially been just accidental, um, poultry, chlorine washes for poultry, actually have taken on a rather talismanic um, nature, and some of these things really are frankly in at a distance look rather, rather ridiculous. But one of the real benefits, and I'll, and I'll stop with this, one of the real benefits, um, uh, the greater benefits is, is uh, of, of TTIP, if it's successful, is relationships for the U.S. and Europe with um, the major emerging markets. You remember that the reason why we don't have a Doha agreement, fundamental reason why we don't have a Doha agreement of global liberalization is because the, the major emerging markets were unwilling to um, to make some of the concessions that were necessary, uh, both on manufacturing and on, on agriculture, agricultural liberalization. Um, and so um, the U.S. and Europe needed to look for alternatives to, to continue to advance uh, liberalization. So what Bob Zellick referred to in, in early Bush years is competitive liberalization. And it's interesting to note that now that the U.S. and Europe are pursuing, US, I think Europe is pursuing something like 17 FTAs, the U.S. pursuing these two massive agreements, um, now even China is, is, is willing to contemplate the prospect of doing FTA. I think they've discussed it with uh, the Europeans, for instance. Um, so I, I think that the, the dynamic for the global system, I think, is important, and you could look at the, this TTIP as becoming something of a hardcore of the global trading system, which would, I think, be valuable in itself. Um, the, um, the other dimension to that is the, um, the norm setting. Um, in the, the global system. If our economies are increasingly um, knowledge-based economies, um, the, uh, that 
ought to shape how we look at trade agreements and what goes into trade agreements, how we structure the provisions around intellectual property, how we structure the provisions around services. Um, and so in these negotiations, which are going to be difficult, um, there's an opportunity to set what will be a gold standard for what a trade agreement ought to look like. And while I would disagree with um, fellow panelists um, that trade agreements traditionally have been just um, about tr um, tariffs, actually if you look at any of the U.S. FTAs over the last two decades, it's mostly about services. I mean, the, the, the these agreements go for about a thousand pages. Um, if you, um, that's a little bit different than the European um, context. But um, if we can um, set what will become a global, a global standard for what a tr FTA is, um, should entail, and then after that open it up to others who are willing to participate on, on the terms of, that, of the agreement, then I think you do have an opportunity to set um, um, a, a new trade agenda in the 21st century. So I'd like to close with that. And I apologize in advance that I have to leave a little bit early because I had a prior engagement. Well, thank you very much, Rod, and stay as long as you'd like, and as soon as your kids are educated, feel free to come back. We'd love to have you. <laughs> um, now we turn to Tom Dusterberg. Uh, Tom is the uh, director of the Program on Manufacturing and Society in the 21st Century uh, at the Aspen Institute. Um, Tom? Chris, thanks, and Ken, thanks for um, inviting me to be a part of this panel. Um, one of the few benefits of getting older and having been around Washington for a good period of time is that you can see sometimes ideas which one has advocated in the past uh, come to uh, increased prominence. I, I think I wrote my first uh, article in favor of a, a U.S.-EU FTA back in 1993 when I was working at the Hudson Institute. Um, and it seems to me that there's an unusual convergence of economic and uh, sort of geopolitical factors which uh, make that idea uh, one that we should grab onto um, and push as hard as we can. I uh, tend to think, even though these uh, sorts of negotiations are incredibly complex, that we have this window of opportunity. The window won't stay open all that long, so we need to press as hard as we can to finish this in the next uh, couple of years before a U.S. presidential campaign uh, enters into the fray and, and before um, the uh, usual uh, opponents of such a, a deal can can uh, work their magic and uh, work the system to undermine it. I'm going to focus a, uh, mostly on the industrial sector, uh, which is my area of, of specialty. It is important for this particular agreement um, because uh, both Europe and the United States are industrial powers. We are each other's largest trading partners. Um, much of that is in the goods sector. And when you look at uh, uh, trade flows, um, including value-added services, it's even more important um, because many services are embedded in the products that we sell. Um, and I'm going to look at this from mostly from the U.S. perspective. Um, um, I, I believe that uh, in the United States right now, there is something of a resurgence of manufacturing. The terms of trade have changed in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Uh, the United States is slowly starting to regain its footing as a manufacturing and industrial power. Um, you look at um, productivity numbers, the unit labor costs for uh, goods produced in the United States, they're all favorable. They're favorable uh, when compared to 
not only Europe, but uh, Japan and China as well. Um, part of the reason for this, uh, which I'll talk about in a second, is uh, energy prices. Um, but uh, there's an accumulated uh, level of productivity improvement and cost control that has uh, allowed the United States um, industrial sector to become uh, even more competitive. And you can see that partly by the establishment of foreign firms here in the United States, uh, especially European firms, Japanese firms, um, even Chinese firms. Uh, energy uh, is the energy revolution, as we all know, has led to a lower pricing structure in the United States. Uh, this is important for two reasons uh, to the industrial sector. One, of course, is that the uh, manufacturing sector um, uses about one-third of all the energy uh, consumed in the United States, especially vis-a-vis -vis Europe um, and Japan. Our, prices, our price structures are much lower. Also in the United States, our uh, chemicals industry um, it uses uh, natural gas as a feedstock. Uh, in Europe, it's mostly petroleum, crude oil, um, and the differential in price there has made the U.S. chemicals industry even more um, um, competitive than it, than it used to be. Um, you can see uh, energy-intensive industries such as chemicals, uh, metals production, uh, autos, uh, even steel, um, becoming more competitive in the United States. And even the OECD thinks that the steel industry in the United States will uh, come back to a certain extent, largely because of um, energy costs and superior technology. Um, the United States uh, and Europe, to a certain extent, traditionally exports competitive advantage via foreign affiliates. Uh, the, there are, um, we are each other's biggest investors in, in terms of foreign direct investment. Um, United States affiliates in Europe sell annually over $3 trillion worth of goods. European industries in, based in the United States affiliates um, sell over $2 billion uh, a year. So a lot of the trade between our two uh, uh, continents is in terms of intermediate goods between companies, between affiliates of companies, the auto people, chemicals, raw, raw materials, uh, aerospace, uh, machine tools, and so on and so forth. Um, and so all of that makes um, harmonizing uh, as much as possible in terms of tariffs and regulatory structure even more important. Um, in advanced technology goods, um, which is the, the basis of competitiveness both for European industry and American industry, uh, we are each other's biggest um, investor in terms of research and development in the other continent. Um, advanced technology trade between the two continents is largely um, in balance. And if uh, Ireland didn't have a 12% corporate tax, which has attracted the pharmaceutical industry, we'd have a, uh, a uh, trade surplus in, in goods with advanced technology goods with Europe. So what is the value of TTIP? Um, Several of the speakers have already touched on this. Um, I'll focus mostly on the economics. I mean, lower tariffs do mean something. Um, Intercompany trade, for instance, in the chemicals industry, if we could eliminate tariffs, would save about a billion dollars to the European industry producing here and about the same for um, American industry um, um, 
sending stuff into Europe. Um, and the manufacturing sectors on both sides of the Atlantic are generally in agreement that this is a good thing. So chemicals industry, the auto industry, the pharmaceutical industries, the machinery industries, all are fa fairly working cooperatively to promote this, uh, this agreement. Um, regulatory harmonization of some sort, um, however it can be achieved, probably through some process of uh, mutual recognition, could be extremely important. I've seen figures um, that I'm not sure I believe, but for the auto industry, if you're producing to one standard for both continents, you could save as much as 10% of your total development and production costs. Even if it's not 10%, it's, it's material. Same goes for uh, approval of drugs or medical, uh, um, medical equipment uh, on both sides. If you can produce to one standard, uh, you can save a fair amount of money. Um, third, the uh, exploiting of the U.S. energy advantage, um, um, I think, can be uh, shared, and uh, there's increasing, I think, attention being paid to uh, quote-unquote energy charter between the, as, as part of this agreement. Um, all, uh, this could be important ec economically because the United States, I, I believe, could use additional export markets. We need to work on um, reducing the barriers to trade in natural gas and in crude oil. Um, if we could do that, if we could become an even bigger exporter of uh, oil, gas, and petroleum products, that would be an extremely good benefit for the industries that feed into the uh, exploitation of energy resources in the United States, machinery of all sources, com uh, compressors, steel, pipe, so on and so forth. Europe, of course, would benefit um, both economically and strategically from uh, freer uh, availability of the massive resources which could be exploited in the United States. Um, and as uh, Bruno uh, touched on, um, just because the two economies are fairly well integrated, because there are so many affiliates on both sides, um, efficiencies in production could be maximized um, with a, an agreement that uh, covered uh, not only tariffs but uh, other impediments to trade that uh, uh, ensue from the, the uh, regulatory structure. Finally, just briefly, because others have touched on it, and I know Jeff will touch on this, the geopolitical importance, um, setting standards for the world trade uh, system, I think, is very important. WTO has stalled. It's increasingly difficult to uh, achieve a major agreement via that mechanism. We could hopefully uh, reinvigorate the uh, global trading system this way. And by the way, um, it would be important for the United States and Europe, traditionally the leaders and the trendsetters, to be setting the standards um, um, instead of perhaps the Chinese or others who uh, aspire to, to, to be the trendsetters. Um, energy cooperation, a good... Uh, again, would help, I think, in the long run, uh, at least to, to a certain extent, uh, to reduce Europe's reliance on um, Russian energy, 
North African energy uh, is important for Europe and is not as reliable uh, as, it, as it should be. So that would be a mutually beneficial ben um, aspect of this agreement if we could um, um, uh, achieve um, uh, an energy charter of some sort which would f uh, allow the United States to export more and give the Europeans another um, source of supply that hopefully would be reliable. Um, so finally, um, again, uh, achieving this agreement, uh, which I think ought to be done in the next 18 months if we uh, realistically hope to get it in the next five years, uh, would keep the momentum going for uh, trade integration and liberalization of the global trading system, which has been such a stupendous benefit to the uh, global economy um, in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. Thank you very much, Tom, and also thank you for reminding us that you've been writing about this and, and saw this coming uh, in many ways or anticipated the need for an agreement like this when you were at Hudson. As everyone here knows, Hudson is the place that you find out tomorrow's news today, so that's, uh, that, that's wonderful. Now we turn to Jeff Gedman. Jeff is a senior fellow in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown and a past president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, happily on this side of the Atlantic for a change, and, uh, but a man who's comfortable on both. So, Jeff, can you give us your perspective? Well, Chris, thank you, and, and Ken and Hudson for hosting this conversation today. Um, the, the title of the panel is uh, something to the effect of uh, uh, after Ukraine renewed interest in transatlantic trade, TTIP. And uh, let me start there. Um, I spent about a week in Eastern Europe, uh, about two weeks before the crisis in Ukraine. Number of countries meeting with a number of people in a number of sectors. In one instance, in one East European country, I sat and had lunch with the president of this nation, whom I asked, as one does, you know, what's on your mind, what keeps you up at night? And he said, well, the first thing is very easy, Russia. And I said, okay, well, what's the second and third? And he said, well, that's not that hard. The second is Russia, and the third is also Russia. <laughs> uh, this was about two weeks, three weeks before the crisis in Ukraine. Um, what I heard from him, I heard from a number of people in a number of capitals in Central and Eastern Europe. And this is the, the formulation that, that kind of emerged. First, the concern or observation uh, about what we Americans have been doing the last 10, 12, 13, 14 years. And the assertion and observation was, not criticism, but observation, that you Americans have been busy with other things. There was 9-11 and Iraq and Afghanistan. There was the 2008 financial crisis. There was Arab Spring and Asia pivot, but the general observation assertion that we Central and East Europeans feel a little bit less tended to than we would like to have it, and certainly compared to the early, mid, and even late 1990s when there was enthusiasm post-Baldwin Wall, NATO expansion, EU expansion. Second observation that emerged, I think uniformly in my conversations, was the West Europeans too actually have seemed rather preoccupied with other things, with the sovereign debt crisis, with the challenge of deepening integration, with problems of the euro. 
And what I heard, again to emphasize pre-Ukraine crisis, was something has been happening that you Americans have not been, and maybe some of you West Europeans, but you Americans, not been very shrewd in observing. As you have vacated the field, Russia has been moving into that field. And it is FSB, intelligence presence, ramped up and active. It's in the sphere of technology, sometimes overt and brazen, like the cyber attacks on Estonia several years ago, it disabled communication in government, in media, and in banking. Um, it's certainly energy as a tool of foreign policy for influence and also to create dependence. It's media and information policy, very assertive and very shrewd and very strategic. And then also meddling, meddling with minorities and meddling in politics. This is what emerged in my conversations in Central and Eastern Europe pre-Ukraine. Um, three things, I think, you know, come to mind immediately when one kind of steps back and tries to take a larger picture of the larger assessment of the situation. One is that uh, we know now from Ukraine that this Russia under Vladimir Putin will use military force in instances where it deems it necessary. It did in Georgia, and it did in Ukraine, and Ukraine may not be over. Second of all, that Russia has become a master of soft power, and what it achieved during the Soviet Union through brute force, while it may still deem that necessary here and there, it can pursue through a variety of other means and methods, and I've alluded to some of those. And then last but not least, that for this near abroad or this region, Central Eastern Europe, former Soviet space, Russia has a vision. And it also has values that are not necessarily ours. In fact, Vladimir Putin, you may have noticed in the news recently, has set up some sort of committee or commission to uh, delve into exactly what Russia wants to articulate as its values as distinct from Western values and the formulation is really quite explicit. The British historian Toynbee, um, British historian Toynbee once said, uh, one of the principal lessons of history is either a nation has an agenda or it becomes the victim of the agenda of others. And so I guess what I'm asserting and playing back to you from what I heard in Central Eastern Europe is over the last dozen years or so, while we've been looking elsewhere, and for good reason, and occupied with other issues and problems and challenges, with good reason, we have been absent of vision, and Russia has not been absent of vision at all. And now we see that a little bit more clearly. Um, well, what does this have to do with TTIP? I think it, it kind of bridges and it becomes obvious. Uh, first of all, as the fellow panelists have noted this morning, uh, the, the centrality and, and the vital importance of TTIP for jobs and growth and GDP and economic health and well-being, and as the previous two speakers, three speakers have said, uh, for its geoeconomic importance are absolutely and crystal clear. But I'd like to argue also that as an overlay, there's actually a geopolitical importance to TTIP also, a larger geopolitical purpose at the same time. It's always been this way. We, we've had talk about transatlantic free trade agreements for a long time, and in fact, maybe most recently in the early 1990s when Margaret Thatcher 
uh, was advocating a transatlantic free trade agreement after the fall of the Berlin Wall. She certainly had in mind economic value, but she had in mind this larger purpose of trying to bind America and Europe together. Or, to Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, just said the other day, uh, this is also about a community of values. TTIP is, she said, an opportunity to bring together what belongs together, close quote. I think that this is important now, today, in particular, for two reasons. One I've already cited, Russian vision, Russian assertiveness, and a, a strategic approach with, which is not at all without coherence and consistency. But also a second reason, and that has to do with that other organization and institution that was so effective for four decades in binding America and Europe, and that was NATO, which I think for a variety of reasons is simply not what it once was and will unlikely be a vital link between the United States and Europe in the next 10 and 20 years. A link to be sure, an important link, but not what it once was, at least for three reasons. First of all, uh, NATO as a common project and a common binding element plays to the strength of the United States, which is hard power. And we know it, and we do it, and we occasionally do it well. That does not play to the strength of contemporary Europe for a variety of reasons. Second of all, uh, it plays to the strength of the United States because it's an organization or, or table at which we sit and continue to be the leader by virtue of many things, including capability and spending. I think, for a variety of reasons, while this community of values is vibrant and we have much in common, post-Cold War Europe feels more ambivalent than it did before about being part of an organization where the United States is the leader and the chairman of the board. You might say in shorthand, for all the goodwill and good things that happen, Germany has become in the last 20 years a little bit more French in its attitudes about America and American leadership. Last but not least, <clears throat> I think my characterization of Russia and Russian influence and Russian intentions now in the former Soviet Union year abroad, I think is broadly shared in most European capitals, but what to do about it, there are divergences and differences. And I think in many European capitals, and certainly in Berlin, while there's concern of a menacing Russia, anything, including through NATO, that could look like a policy of confrontation, or if you will, provocation, will not get much of a hearing. And it's because of history, it's because of temperament, maybe you could argue it's because of proximity, it's certainly because of economic and energy reasons. You know, to take Ukraine for example, the pipeline that goes through provides Western Europe and the EU nations in that part of the continent with about 20% of their natural gas. Germany has a very large commercial relationship and trading partnership with Russia and as, as regrettable as Putin's actions in Ukraine are seen in Berlin and in Dusseldorf and Frankfurt, there's worry that anything that upsets that apple cart will have a uh, disadvantageous effect on the German economy. I don't say this, this, don't make this geopolitical argument for nostalgic reasons. I, I think that uh, 
the ties that bind America and Europe, whatever they are, and each has to be an element in a broader strategy, has to do from an American perspective for our need to have allies, where we have, generally speaking, common interests and a foundation of common values, whether it's within that part of the world or externally and globally, this is an important alliance for us. And I think to move forward, Tom said this, you know, how important it is to capitalize and move forward, attention span is short, other crises emerge, to push and drive on this, I think we're going to need critical leadership. Angela Merkel said again at the larger geoeconomic but also geopolitical level last week, or maybe it was this week, it would be a paradox of history. She didn't say this electoral cycle, this quarter, this week. <laughs> a paradox of history if America and Europe failed in this transatlantic free trade enterprise. And my concern will be not so much right now from the European side, but from the American side, Chris, because we have a president who hasn't shown a great appetite for free trade agreements, and we have a president who probably doesn't feel most at home with so what someone called once the vision thing. So I'll stop there. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jeff. And um, I would want to bring in the audience your questions um, and your thoughts, but. As you're preparing that question, let me turn back to Dr. Machace and say, having listened to some of the American perspective from, from different angles from our panelists, um, how, how do you react and how compatible do you think uh, these two visions are, the one that you've laid out and, and some of what you've heard here on the panel? It seems that we're essentially talking about the same thing and we have the same goals. Mm. Um, and, and that reassures me. Uh, I have to say... Perhaps this, there's some bias on my part saying this, but I'm more worried with the American side than I am with the European. Uh, I'm not worried with the, with the political transition in Europe. Um, you know that it will be smooth. Uh, the commission is a, a political but also a technical institution. Um, it's not really an executive. Um, and it's certainly not the sort of body that will be uh, as subject to, to political change and to ideological change as, as a government in a, in a member state or in the U.S. So it's much easier to think in the case of the Commission that we'll have a smooth transition, uh, that nothing will change in the approach that we've taken about TTIP. Uh, I'm fully confident uh, of that. And so it will not interfere with, uh, with the TTIP on our side. Uh, I'm a bit more worried with the political process in the U.S., and of course I'm worried with um, uh, the approaching presidential elections, uh, which the primary season is already relatively closed, and that things could become more difficult on the American side. I hope not, um, and I hope the commitment to TTIP uh, remains very strong, as it is right now, uh, and I should add that uh, all the indications I have is that the commitment to TTIP is, is at the moment uh, strong. Uh, then uh, the, the regulatory part. There's one point I left out which I think is very interesting. Usually you, you want to have, in trade theory, you want to have free trade agreements for many reasons, comparative advantage, scale, uh, and so on. But one, perhaps the most interesting one, is that you want to have, uh, you want to stimulate learning, uh, transfer of knowledge, of technology, but, but essentially learning. Usually uh, in a free trade agreement, that happens between companies. 
But here, because the focus is so much on the regulatory part, and it's true that in the past it's been there, but here it's the main focus is on the regulatory part, you're also going to have these learning processes between regulators. That's very interesting and very promising, that you'd have regulators learning from each other. That's already happening. Uh, I'm told that you know every time there's a negotiating round, you have a full plane, about 200, 250 people mm -hmm. going to the other, to mm -hmm. the other side of, of regulators, um, policy officials, and, and so on and so forth. So it's already taking place, and then it will take place slowly uh, for, for a decade or two after the agreement where you can actually be exposed to different ways of doing the same thing. Because if it's different ways of doing different things, learning is difficult, but different ways of doing the same thing, it could be extremely useful uh, and it could improve regulation on both sides. Now, you understand that people don't want to focus too much on this, on improving regulation on both sides. And one reason is that you don't want the, uh, the trade commissioner or the U.S. trade representative to actually be making policy. That's some, one pe some, some other people's business. So, of course, they don't want to focus on this. It's understandable, but it's part of the idea that uh, regulation in Europe and the U.S. could change as a result of, of, of this agreement and could become better, that you could learn from the other side on, on specific things. Um, energy, uh, very, very important. Uh, we have to uh, take this opportunity, uh, the Ukraine crisis, which has called attention to, to energy dependence in Europe, uh, to really build a, a common energy market, uh, transatlantic energy market. And it would be good for American companies, which are selling below price, mm. uh, American producers. Uh, they shouldn't be happy about that. And it would be good for Europeans. Uh, it would be good for Portugal, which could become an entry point for American gas into Europe. Uh, it makes sense that the Portuguese Atlantic coast, that you'd, um, you'd have, uh, we already have a, a huge LNG terminal in Portugal near Lisbon, and it could be an entry point uh, for gas into Europe. So we're trying to work on this, and uh, there's some interest on, on the American side. And finally, the last point, I think we're seeing clear realization that trade is a tool of foreign policy. Um, and the United States and Europe are not, um, are not always uh, aware of this, and other, other countries, other blocs are. Uh, but being a trade of foreign policy doesn't mean that, uh, that you, you use protectionism as a, as a tool of foreign policy. It means that you use free trade as a, as a tool of foreign policy. Um, and, you know, I talked about economic sanctions. The problem with economic sanctions is that the, the, the side imposing those sanctions has to pay a price for them. But if you have a very large transatlantic economic bloc, you pay a, a very small price for economic sanctions because um, suppliers can readjust. If you impose a sanction on someone, let's say country Y or country X, um, and in return that country retaliates, it's very easy for an economic bloc the size of, 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 of the US and, and the EU together for trade flows to readjust immediately to the sanction with very little cost for the side imposing it. Uh, that's crucial and it's not always uh, talked about, but it will, it will give us uh, much greater flexibility. Uh, and uh, and make our economies uh, much more resistant to to trade shocks, either sanctions or other kinds of trade shocks like protectionism, in uh, in other parts of the world, which hasn't risen so far as a result of the global crisis, but could could rise at at, at any moment uh, significantly. So those were the main points in reaction to the comments. Thanks Excellent. so much. Very very <coughs> comprehensive. You can tell he took notes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, questions from the from the floor. There's a gentleman here. We have a microphone coming up. If, just to remind you, if you could tell us who you are and where you're from. 
uh, and then speak into the microphone. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I'm Gardner Peckham with Prime Policy Group. I wanted to ask you to focus on two issues that I think are kind of bellwethers on uh, TTIP. The first is uh, cross-border data flows, an issue that uh, started off with a certain amount of momentum, I think, from the U.S. side, but it's met with a lot of resistance from the European side, particularly given the Snowden revelations and the manner in which European businesses seem to be maneuvering using the Snowden uh, uh, revelations as, an as a business opportunity, if you will. Uh, as you know, the French president and the German chancellor have suggested that we should have a European internet which is quite contrary to the U.S. corporate position on, on uh, cross-border data. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see that issue playing out. The second issue is agriculture. Uh, I've heard a lot of Europeans over the last year talk about what's not on the table, and, and geographic indicators usually uh, are, the, are the starting point. Beef hormones are another. Uh, the, the ag lobby in the United States is very strong. Agricultural interests in Congress are very strong. I don't see an agreement going forward that doesn't have a significant liberalization on the ag side, and I'm not sure Europe uh, is able to, to go that far. I'd be interested in your views on that as well. Gentlemen, anybody want to jump in? <laughs> I'll, I'll start. I'll, I'll, I'll say very little about data flows. Uh, <laughs> But I, I can say a lot about agriculture and, and GIs. Uh, data flow, so far, it hasn't interfered with the process. Uh, but it's a delicate matter. Um, yeah, we, you know, it doesn't make sense to have uh, trade integration if you don't have also uh, flows of data. Because most of, uh, for example, internet shopping and things like that, they're, they're going to be data flows. And those have to be protected. Uh, so it's... Um, the only thing I can say about this is that so far it's not interfered with the negotiations. We want to keep it that way, but let's see how the issue develops. Uh, agriculture and GIs. Um, and here maybe I'll, I'll send a note that, uh, that will be a little different from, from what's, what's uh, said on, on, the, on the American side. You know that in trade negotiations you usually hear this idea that uh, there's cultural specificities that have to be preserved. And particularly if we're negotiating with some Asian countries, this is there all the time. And Japan, you know, is uh, masterful at, at, at using this, uh, this, this sort of arguments. Well, uh, GIs is a peculiarity of European culture that has to be respected. This time we're going to use that argument as well. Um, it's the way s we think in Europe about protecting copyright uh, in agriculture. Much more the brand, the company brands, we want to protect uh, geographical, regional indications. It's part of our history. Now, the problem, of course, and uh, uh, I understand this, is that um, America was, to a considerable extent, uh, built by uh, European immigrants. And they brought those products to the U.S. early on, uh, feta, mozzarella, parmesan, and, and all the others. And they became generic terms and, and not really regional indications anymore. Uh, in fact, they now refer to products that are not exactly the original ones. Uh, and we understand in Europe that this also has to be taken into account, that these are generic terms that, uh, and no longer what they, what they are in Europe. So I'm, I'm hopeful we can reach a sort of balanced position here. And the general framework would be something like this. Um, you want to have producers competing in the market with full information for consumers. So if an American producer is selling Parmesan, that's fine as long as the consumer understands that this, is not, this was not made in, in Italy. Uh, so, you know, let's not have an Italian flag there. Let's not have a Tower of Pizza in the mm. packaging. Mm. 
uh, and all other subtle indications. And in fact, I would suggest let's make it clear somehow that this was 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 made in uh, Kentucky uh, and not in uh, not in Parma. Uh, and then let the consumer choose. Uh, and you know, we're hopeful in the Portuguese case that uh, people will prefer port from Portugal than port from California. But let the consumer try and choose. Uh, and this should also be part of, of building this common trading area. I think this, this would be the general approach, and I'm hopeful we can make it work. But clearly this is challenging because the, the sort of approach we have to these things on both sides of the Atlantic are very different. And in the U.S. sometimes it's even <coughs> difficult to, to understand what the concept of a geographical indication is. Uh, you could have Parmesan made anywhere in the world, and Parmesan is about the products. But for us, uh, somehow it's part of our culture that we are... You know, real Parmesan mm. is made in Parma. Real port is in the Douro Valley. And mm. we, it, this actually means something for us. It's not a negotiating, a negotiating trick. Mm. Uh, we actually believe in this. Uh, rightly or wrongly, we believe that this is the way it is. Uh, so let's see what happens. But uh, I'm, I'm still hopeful we can understand each, each, each side's position and, and reach a reasonable agreement. Tom? I'll just make a couple of quick comments. Um, remembering that the U.S. Constitution uh, delegates two senators to every state, including small agricultural states. It's a traditional problem, but there's an anecdote from the um, NAFTA negotiations, which is fairly well known here in the United States when getting down to the final difficulties. One of them was the sugar program. One of the worst aspects of uh, American uh, protectionism is for certain agricultural products like sugar. Um, but uh, I think we were down to lumber, which is important to Canada, and sugar. And then there was culture, the, the cultural ex exemption for um, films, magazines, and so on and so forth in Canada. And at a certain point, uh, Jim Baker took over the negotiations and just observed, being a Southerner, that sugar is culture down where he came from. <laughs> so um, we still have the sugar program, <coughs> uh, unfortunately. Uh, on um, data flows, I, I would just observe that from a purely economic point of view as well, it's increasingly important as the economy is integrated, and there's this growing phenomenon called the uh, Internet of Things, mm -hmm. where machines will talk to each other, supply chains are digitally uh, integrated wherever they are all around the world. So uh, that is the sort of the next major revolution in uh, productivity improvements and innovation, in, the in at least in the industrial sector. And so we, we do need to... Um, have a good resolution of that. And my understanding is only <coughs> that there is a people are attempting to be creative in addressing this, but I don't I don't have any insight into where the negotiations stand. Jeff, any comments on cheese? Just checking. <laughs> um, maybe not on cheese, but you know on on culture, and and as Gardner's uh, question implied, of course there's something commercial and mercenary about this, and and self-interested. Well, you know, in the case of Germany on some of those questions, it's not surprising either. They, they really do for reasons of history. In the case of the Germans, have very, very, very high exceptional sensitivities to these things. I was at a dinner party last month, three weeks ago, bewildering though it sounds, where a German 
diplomat asked me in the context of Snowden whether I had British or American citizenship. I'm living in London right now. I said, well, American citizenship. And the diplomat asked me, how do you feel about that? I feel pretty good about it, but anyway. <laughs> so anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, next, other questions? Ma'am? Uh, good morning. My name, my name is Maria José Sousa Fiaga. I'm from the European Parliament Liaison Office with the US Congress. And I wanted to address uh, some points. The first one to the Secretary de Estado concerning the regulatory chapter of the negotiations. Uh, do you have any idea how could, be, could we find a solution to the fact that there is some asymmetry in the decision-making process concerning some sectors where issues here are decided at regulatory level and in the European Union are decided at legislative level? And related to this, I would say, uh, do you believe that the agreement with Canada can be helpful in this regard? The second point I'd like to raise has to do to procurement. Do you believe, Secretary Stad, that uh, the U.S. side is doing and the federal level is doing the necessary steps to, ex to, to get a positive solution to the difficulties it may face with states? It states and the fact that the jurisdiction and the competence on these aspects uh, relies uh, at the state level. On energy, I'd like to ask mostly to you because you raised the issue. Uh, do you, what do you think about this initiative that has been launched here in Washington in March on the Atlantic Basin Initiative, known as the Atlantic Basin Initiative, and presented yesterday in Brussels, uh, or could have in bringing the reductions of the energy costs in particular to Europe, which is a major problem to our enterprises in their competition with the American ones, how this could this initiative be also a component of our search of an agreement on an energy, a transatlantic energy market? With this, I'd like to thank you for being mm. here. It's good to be Portuguese and to see you here at the Hudson, at such an <laughs> important institute. <laughs> Wonderful. Lot, lots there. Who wants to jump in? Well, I guess I can say something about the energy um, discussions. I, I'm not familiar enough with the details of the Atlantic Basin Initiative to know how it could be helpful. I, I think we can, here in the United States, as you know, there, there's a good deal of, of uh, controversy um, about whether or not, how far we should go in terms of allowing uh, exports of energy. A TTIP would solve the problem for natural gas. Um, hopefully it would solve, solve it for uh, crude oil as well. Um, the industrial sector, by and large, is generally in favor, and, and enthusiastically in most cases, in favor of enlarging uh, the ability uh, uh, to export both uh, oil and gas. Uh, there's some dissenters, but even the trade associations that represent um, the industry are generally in, in favor of that. So I think the uh, opportunity we have before us is to emphasize not only the economics, the economic benefits of this to both sides, but um, the geopolitical benefits as well. I mean, we do have this uh, current opportunity to uh, reflect 
um, about the long term uh, and uh, a more stable oil and gas market would be good to cement the relationship politically, but also extremely uh, important on both sides to um, uh, economic uh, uh, success. The, the regulatory challenges. Uh, I think there's some also institutional asymmetries um, that the um, the political regulatory process is different on both sides and they will have to converge to some extent. So it's not impossible that we'll actually have to introduce some changes on both sides when it comes to the regulatory process. That perhaps new institutions or bodies will have to be created. So this shows the difficulty but also how how interesting the whole discussion is. Let me give you an example because we talk usually about this regulatory coherence in such abstract terms, it's difficult to see exactly what it means. So uh, let me quickly give an example. The auto industry, and this is important for us because Portugal is the sixth largest uh, auto producer in Europe. Uh, not that well known, but sixth. Won't it be the fifth uh, in the future? So we're very interested in TTIP and what that can bring to, uh, to, to the Portuguese and European auto industry. But let's see which side is most competitive. Uh, we think uh, European cars, European auto industry will be more competitive, but we'll see. This is the interesting thing about trade agreements. Um, and it will make us better on both sides. You know, a producer in Portugal was actually explaining to me the other day, if this goes forward, we'll have to invest heavily in technology uh, to make our, our production process uh, uh, more efficient. And I, I stopped him and said, <laughs> Yeah, that's the <laughs> whole purpose. Uh, that's not a problem with, uh, with the agreement. That's the purpose of the agreement, to force people to, to become better. But auto industry. So as I understand it, this is what is happening. You go through the, the safety tests that were, uh, that were uh, done over the past five, ten years. You compare them. Uh, you try to uh, reach a conclusion about where exactly they fulfilled the exactly same safety, safety goals, um, where they fulfill exactly the same safety goals within a negligible margin of difference. So if they achieve the same safety goals with a difference of 0.001%, you mutually recognize the tests, and they become acceptable on both sides. So let's see, tire safety, you're achieving with tests on both sides exactly the same results, you, you recognize mutually. If there's some part of the car where you don't achieve something that can be considered more or less the same, then you don't mutually recognize. And what for, let's say, windshields. The tests are so different on both sides that you don't have the same levels of safety. What happens with windshields? Either you think it's possible to bring them to, to, a, to, a, to the same level of safety, and then you would recognize them as well. And that could involve only one side changing their tests or both sides changing their tests and bring them to to a point where they, they fulfill exactly the same safety goals. Or you think that's too difficult, you don't do it, and you don't mutually recognize when it comes to windshields. And so when it comes to windshields, companies will still have to go through two different tests. But that's fine, because it will be only half the car that will have to be tested twice, and the other half will only be tested once. That's already a major gain. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's this kind of approach. It's not a structural, uh, approach like in the European common market, and you go piece by piece, a very delicate, long, and difficult process, and I agree that this is going to take more than uh, the, the, the one tank of gas that people talked about. Uh, and you see where you can ob obtain immediate gains 
by mutual recognition where you have to work a little bit and where you just have to leave things as they are. That's fine. We don't want this to be perfect. We don't want this to be uh, elegant. We want it to have to be more economically efficient. Mm -hmm. So wherever we can find that, uh, we'll do it. And then finally, the, the state's issue. What Canada did was to bring the provinces in, make them part of the negotiating process. Uh, I think this will have to happen in the U.S. as well. I don't want to interfere with domestic politics. But at some point, uh, during in particular the, the public procurement chapter negotiations, I think you have to bring <coughs> the states in and make them part of the discussion. Uh, the difficulty is that you have 50 states and uh, how many provinces in Canada? 12, 13, something like that, right? So this is more difficult. Uh, the question here is whether you need to have the 50 states. I suppose if you had 30 states sign the agreement, and third large ones, and then in the future you'd be open to, to the others and they would feel some pressure to join, perhaps that would be sufficient. But, uh, you know, this is a decision uh, the U.S. government has to make. Well, I think something like this will have to, have to be put in place. And of course, it, as you know, 37 of our states are signed on to Annex 2 of the Government Procurement Agreement of the WTO, opening up their procurement. And those are most of the big states. And since Europe and most of the European Union countries are participants in that as well, we're better off, I think, U.S. Europe than Canada was because the provinces right. have refused up to that point. Uh, Jeff, did you want to uh, weigh in on this? I was gonna, let me put the question to you of something that I think has been behind a little of this discussion. Canada has obviously negotiated a trade agreement with the European Union. And we talked, certainly Tom talked about North American economy. A lot of our supply chains are North American. And yet, <clears throat> North America hasn't negotiated with Europe. It's Canada, the U.S., and Mexico negotiating separately in different time frames with different structures. Uh, strategically, do you think um, that, do you think this is wise, or do you think that we ultimately have to do some North American getting our house in order in order to pursue the opportunities with Europe that we might dream of? I, I wouldn't mind that at all. I don't know what the practical realities and opportunities are, and of course we have two neighbors that are in very different circumstances for a variety of different reasons. So I would, mm -hmm. I, I would argue whatever the market will bear, and I would argue for a variety of reasons on a political basis that the United States, with due respect to the other neighbors, has some practical advantages. Absolutely. All right, we have uh, two questions, one here and one here. Um, why don't we start this side just to bat it back and forth, give our camera people something to, to do. Uh, Dick Grossen with the uh, Council for a Community of Democracies. Um, the title of our session, as uh, Jeff pointed out, was to link the trade agreement with the U Ukrainian crisis. Uh, it's hard to see how this new unity that would be born and uh, aided and abetted through the uh, agreement is going to have any immediate effect on Ukraine as such. Uh, but there is one area which the panel had focused on where it could have immediate effect, and that is uh, an energy charter or a common energy plan. Uh, and this would not just involve transatlantic, it would involve the pipelines uh, from Baku, Azerbaijan, bordering on Iran, Turkey, that supply alternate sources of energy that could uh, allow the Ukraine to achieve a, an independence that otherwise would not be possible because of their gas uh, situation with, with Russia. So I'd, I'd like to hear a little more about what such a plan might be and how it might be promulgated. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen. Let, let me start. Uh, 
Well, I think it would be an excellent idea. If we could, as a sort of... TTIP is going to take a couple of years, two years, three years, maybe four years, I don't know. Uh, let's hope it's uh, it's two years, but it's gonna it's gonna take some time. Uh, if we could have a separate energy charter that will be signed very soon, um, what would be the content of such charter? Uh, the United States would lift lift its energy uh, export restrictions. It would uh, present an ambitious plan for infrastructure, building LNG terminals, and speed up the process. Europe, on its side, would also speed up its its infrastructure build up uh, interconnectors within Europe, both in the east, but also interconnectors between uh, the Iberian Peninsula and Spain. So that energy from Algeria, from uh, Nigeria, from Brazil, and from the US could enter Europe in the, uh, through the Iberian Peninsula for us. It would be very interesting. Um, uh, and also s s uh, change some of the interconnectors that are not reverse flows in Eastern Europe that need to become uh, reverse flows. Uh, so if the both sides could announce such an energy charter uh, very soon, within this year, with some concrete measures, and perhaps these examples <laughs> I've given are, are too ambitious and you'd have to uh, have a more modest approach, fine, let's, let's see what it is. I think that would be an excellent idea and it would uh, have an immediate impact, uh, both economic and geostrategic and, and in terms of security. Uh, and you'd go a long way towards creating this uh, transatlantic energy market. So. I, I'll, I'll suggest this. Uh, I'm thinking of writing an op-ed suggesting it. It's going to be difficult, but as, as many people, if, if as many people as possible would would put some pressure on both mm -hmm. sides so that we could could have something like this. I, I think would be enormously helpful, and sort of the big thinking that we need. Um, as far as the uh, natural gas markets go, it's it's going to be difficult to do anything very fast because of the uh, tremendous infrastructure involved. Although. We do have um, uh, permits in place and construction in place, but even then, I think 2015 is this, late 2015 is the soonest we're going to have gas LNG flowing across the ocean from the U.S. Um, crude oil is another matter. Um, I, um, it was, our restrictions are based on legislation passed in like 73 or around there after the uh, first oil crisis. Um, and uh, a lot of trade lawyers think that um, you could lift those restrictions um, by executive action. Um, the infrastructure largely is in I mean, you always need more, but we could start exporting crude oil. In fact, the oil that we're producing um, from uh, tight shale formations is a type of light oil for which we don't have the uh, refining capacity, and Europe does. So it would be beneficial to both sides to free up that that, f that type of light oil, uh, send it to Europe. Um, uh, there's always already a good two-way trade in refined products which are not covered by the export bans. So that could conceivably be done by executive action. Um, and perhaps the importance <coughs> in the short run would be more symbolic, but it wouldn't take as long to get 
meaningful flows going, and it would be a something of a sign that we were serious about this larger overall project of uh, a transatlantic uh, energy um, community. So, gentlemen, here I think is our, our has to be our last question because we are running out of time, and I'll ask everyone to give short, punchy answers. Uh, so hopefully the question will, will solicit them. Thank you. I think that the question is, is a clarifying question to Bruno. You used the, Chris Bladowski from Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. You have used the term fundamental differences, and I'm not sure that I got uh, that right. Mm -hmm. Fundamental differences meaning that both sides would reserve the right to exclude certain areas because of these fundamental differences, or is it that they would strive to strike a compromise to arrive at some kind of an agreement. And the reason I'm not clear about that is that I could have missed the wording, but also uh, we've already had one fundamental difference on audiovisuals that the Europeans have insisted on excluding, uh, at least from the trade uh, portion of the, of, uh, of the deal. The reason I think it would be quite dangerous from my point of view uh, to exclude anything on fundamental differences because the next philosophical question is, what is how fundamental is fundamental? If you start excluding, then you may all end up only with low-hanging fruit, and then the whole agreement may, may be n worth much less than I think the, uh, the optimistic expectations um, are right there. Uh, th that's a fair point, and it's a point I've heard a lot in, uh, in my conversations here uh, yesterday. Um, let me just tell you wh what I am thinking, and perhaps I'm wrong, but um, I'm afraid that the public debate could get a little bit out of control if we don't reassure our citizens that the choices that they have made democratically, and that we know in some cases are very different on both sides of the Atlantic, will be preserved. Uh, because you, you already have a number of people who are against the agreement and will use scare tactics and create the impression that people will have to renounce those choices that they have made democratically. Uh, and if we're not careful about uh, reassuring people that that's not the case, and even going out of our way to reassure people, then the discussion is, is going to be difficult, and we may actually lose it. So this is what I am thinking, and that I would be tolerant in accepting uh, some clear language on this, and I'd be tolerant in losing some of the uh, economic gains that the agreement can give us in order to make sure that the discussion is more civil uh, and, and, and more sophisticated than it would otherwise be. Uh, and so on things like GMOs, hormone beef, people are scared in Europe, genuinely scared. Um, again, it's not a negotiating tactic. So in some cases, perhaps not this, perhaps others, and perhaps these are which we should try to reach a compromise. But I think it has to be accepted that in some <coughs> very specific and hopefully very limited issues, they will have to be uh, dropped out for the time being. I think this is more or less inevitable, perhaps unfortunately, but more or less inevitable. And I'm sure there are examples on the American side as well uh, of things that you'd rather not uh, uh, even have a discussion about. Uh, as long as these are very limited, and as long as, we, in fact, we don't completely close the doors and later we can return to these issues, I think that would help the discussion enormously because otherwise we may regret it two, three years from now. <coughs> I've seen this happen so many times where public debate on, on free trade agreements gets, um, gets a little, gets really away from what's, what's at issue and, and gets distracted by by these topical issues 
which are very limited and so better to, to leave them out and, and talk about what is fundamental about the strategic and, and economic goals of the agreement and not about hormone beef and have a discussion that is 90% about hormone beef and 10% about what all that can be gained from this mm. in strategic, political, even security terms. This is what I'm thinking. But, uh, but I understand the other argument. Uh, uh, and I understand that the American side is a little bit worried when it starts to see these fundamental issues pile <laughs> up. But I do understand <laughs> that. <laughs> um, Jeff, Tom, closing thoughts? We are, we are facing a real challenge here. I would just repeat something that I said earlier. I, I, I think the window of opportunity for this agreement is, is faster than most of the commentators and uh, government officials that I've talked to are, are willing to admit. Um, I, I just think past 2015, it gets extremely uh, difficult, perhaps just from the American side, with our presidential election. And we have some momentum now on both sides um, by leading actors, by politicians. The uh, industrial sector is very much behind this. I just think we ought to take advantage of it, uh, f um, work hard to get it done uh, before the, uh, the window of opportunity closes. Jeff? Uh, well, Chris, I agree with Tom. It's a window, it, it closes. Rarely do you have this alignment between strong economic rationale and geoeconomic advantage and geopolitical uh, benefit, which is all, uh, I think, in very good alignment. I will add just quickly uh, to add a note of what uh, cautious pessimism, Dick, on you know, looking it back to the, the general framing today of Ukraine and what this means and what this does to the conversation. I think it's a wake-up call and gives us a chance to get focused on what we can do because in the case of Ukraine, even with energy, and I think there are things we can do in Ukraine in the medium to long term, but in the short term, they got us and they got Ukraine and we were flat-footed and Vladimir Putin has advantages of proximity culture and history and FSB on the ground and beyond energy, commercial ties and a military option we can't exercise. So let's do our best to help Ukraine but realize for that region and the broader transatlantic community, don't wait for a crisis. Find now. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank, join me in thanking them for a great panel. <laughs>